0: Thank you, John, for that, uh, that prayer this morning, and, and John did pray that, we would, uh, that the Lord would give us wisdom in uh, the way we live uh, our Christian lives, the way we live toward each other, and the way we live uh, before the world, and it's a, uh, a very timely prayer. In fact, that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at a, or pick up with our passage in Hebrews chapter 6. If you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 6... I would like to begin, um, and uh, I want to talk about how really we are to live wisely, uh, how we're to be imitators really of Christ. So um, it's a little bit of a of a, a general outline, but I have published a more specific outline in your uh, in your bulletin. If you have that with you, just to follow along with these. So let me just begin then with. <clears throat> A bit of introduction, if I may, this is the first Sunday of 2021, and there's nothing more appropriate, as I mentioned already, than celebrating our Lord on this day than by gathering around the communion table. It really sets the tone. Communion is the epitome of fellowship. It says that there's nothing between us, there's no outstanding sin in our lives, hopefully we've taken care of that before we partake and by all outward appearances we are of the same mind here i often think i often think of the way we are the way we are at the lord's supper in our attitude toward christ and our attitude toward each other really is the way that we should be all the time and because of what the table represents and because we have to come to it with a clear conscience it has often represented for me somewhat of a fresh start to the month every month we celebrate the significance of Jesus' death, we, in a sense, hit the reset button in our conscience and our behavior and come washed and clean and thankful. Now, it's too bad that we cannot push a reset button on our society. We don't have the power to make all the hysteria of a pandemic vanish in an instant or the uncertainty of our economy or elections or the pandemonium caused by the divisions within our country. That kind of reformation comes only by a transformation of the heart. And, of course, that's not our business. That's God's business. We do our biblical best in situations that are under our control But we leave to God those situations that are quite out of our control, and that's still cause for rejoicing, beloved, because who better to leave such ominous and threatening situations that are beyond us than to God himself, right? Well, there's another scenario which I believe to be worse than the condition of our country, And that really is the apostasy that has characterized the body of Christ at large in America in recent times. I've been arguing for a couple of years now that the church is in a season of apostasy and I return to it with a renewed vigor this morning. Not only because, well, it's an element in our text in Hebrews chapter 6, but I want to keep it ever before us. The past... Christmas celebrations have made it, I think, easy for us to forget how much this season of apostasy has made the good fight more heated, and it has. So let me remind you, the church is in a season of apostasy and compromise. There are false churches that are leading people astray in the name of Jesus. We have seen some well-known and respected Christian personalities denounce the faith in 2020 and others of them buying into the public consciousness of our society and bringing it into the church, most notably the teaching of social justice and critical race theory. Some churches are now woke and persecuting those that aren't. Seminaries are hiring professors who champion this kind of mindset, even promoting what's now called a woke hermeneutic which takes its place right next to the feminist hermeneutic and the homosexual hermeneutic. Oh yeah, they've been alive and well for a long time. Now there's something that we can say and do about this. Now, I, I don't mean by that that we can fix it all of a sudden or make it just go away. But at the, at the very least, we can act responsibly to those who profess Christ in the midst of it all. And that's all of us the best place to start of course with with is 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 with our priority that's the best place to start so we start with our own family members and then we start from there uh, we go on to our, our our own church body and then our christian friends who attend other churches or who don't attend any churches as the case may be whether they're far away or close to us and then All other Christians with whom we have a loose association, such as parachurch organizations and, and missionaries that we might support. What I'm saying is this. We have a responsibility specifically to encourage these groups to be fervent and to be vigilant in their faith. And that responsibility is all the more heightened by this season of apostasy and compromise where it is not always easy to tell if a professing Christian is really an apostate or genuinely born again, just severely compromised. How do you know? Do you know? Is there some criteria? How this season of apostasy makes it difficult for us to to discern between the the two is, is much, I think, like the way this current pandemic makes it difficult for us to distinguish the one who is infected with the virus from the one who has a common cold. Do you know the difference right off? And that's because there are similarities or, or symptoms, in this case, that both share. Someone can have all the symptoms of COVID-19 and not have COVID-19. They're just ill with something. In the same way, those who profess to be Christians can at times act like apostates, but they are genuinely born again. And just as it would be natural for us to be more concerned or guarded in this pandemic when we learn that a loved one or a friend has come down with a cold, we act the same way during this pandemic of apostasy with those who act in a way that is not in keeping with their confession. We wonder, is he an apostate or is he just acting like one at this particular moment? Now the writer of Hebrews helps us to bring needed encouragement to the body in an effective and discerning way in this season of apostasy. And that's because he faced this very situation. He shows us how he encourages the body when genuine saints act like apostates. So, if you are already at Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to be looking uh, at verses 9 to 12. We left off, if you remember, in the middle of a of another admon- uh, admonition. There are several that came up through this letter. And the writer will address a particular teaching that is specific to their issues, and then interrupt a flow of his theological thought with a practical word about where they seem to be in their walk with Christ and where they need to be in their walk with Christ. So that's that's the admonition. This particular admonition is the third one so far in the book, and it runs from chapter five, verse eleven, all the way to chapter six, verse twenty, and it divides very nicely into three major sections. The first section is chapter 5, 11, to chapter 6, 3. And it's his plea to move toward maturity. The second is chapter 6, verses 3 to 8. And it's a severe warning not to fall away. Then, the third, the one that concerns us now, runs from chapter 6, verse 9, all the way down to verse 20, which is his call to endure Faith because God is faithful. Now we're going to look, as I say, just at verses 9 to 12 this morning. We're going to discover the writer's course of action that he leaves for us to follow when it comes to encouraging the brothers and the sisters in this whole pandemic of apostasy. There are three aspects to his approach. The first one is this. In seasons of apostasy, we should encourage believers and not hesitate to warn them when at times they act like apostates. We're to encourage them. But we're also to warn them when at times they act like apostates. And we're not to be hesitant about that. Let me say it this way. It's always good to alert believers when their actions are characteristic of apostasy, even if their salvation is not in question. Genuine believers can commit apostate acts, let me say it that way, using apostate as an adjective, apostate-like acts. And when they do, we shouldn't hesitate to call them on it. Maybe you find it hard to believe that a real Christian can act like an apostate at times. How is that even possible, you might be thinking. What? That a Christian cannot sin? That the Christian can talk and act just like an unbeliever at times? Is it so hard to believe that they can latch on to a particular teaching or be involved in some church activity thinking it's biblical when all the while it's actually anti-biblical? Let's not be naive, beloved. Even honest-to-goodness apostasy is not necessarily associated with hateful acts toward the faith, you know, especially the kind that keeps people in the church by redefining orthodoxy. What does Paul say about those who won't put up with sound doctrine? They surround themselves with teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, they leave the orthodox uh, and firm, sound, Bible-believing church and go right down the street and open up one themselves, which is apostate. So genuine Christians can get swept up in similar contexts without even knowing it And it's much more likely to happen if they are spiritually immature. Hold on to that thought. Now, you know that I've been a biblical counselor for many years, and I am somewhat of a champion for it. It's really the essence of shepherding as far as I'm concerned. Pastors should know how to take the word of God into the lives of people. If they do not know how to do that, then they shouldn't be pastors. What makes counseling particularly biblical is that it doesn't integrate secular psychology with theology as Christian counseling does. One of the foundational truths that we biblical counselors appeal appeal to on a regular basis is the sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Scripture enough to counsel people in a godly and sound fashion? Well, it was for 1900 years until Freud came along. I believe it is. It is sufficient, and it's in it's illogical and sinful to integrate Scripture with teaching that competes with it. Now, go to church, or go from church to church within mainline Protestantism throughout America. Take a survey of how many Christians believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It would be no surprise to learn, of course, that Most do. Most believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But in light of the fact that they see no problem practicing integration, well, they really don't. And you see the problem. If they're not adept in identifying this kind of discrepancy, they surely are not adept at telling the difference between what is sound and what is downright heretical. And so I say again, genuine born-again Christians can be involved from time to time in practices that are characteristic of apostates. I wonder if some of you are still skeptical. This exact scenario explains rather well what's taking place in the church that received this letter to the Hebrews. The writer sees the need to warn them about apostasy in verses 8, 4 to 8. And what a sobering warning it is. But now, in verse 9, he shifts gears a bit. He moves away from sober warning and gives much-needed encouragement. But notice that in verse 9, he refers to his sober warning in passing. That being verses 4 to 8. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends... Like this, he says. Like what? Well, with a warning that they make sure that none of them falls away. What this little introductory phrase shows, in other words, it it shows us that it is perfectly fine, actually warranted and necessary at times, to send the church a warning regarding apostasy when we see that those in the church are carrying on in a way that is characteristic of apostasy and more so so in these seasons of apostasy. Now, if you still think that this kind of warning should be given only to cults that claim to be Christian, it has no place in the church, and that it's totally uncalled for when we're talking about really sound Bible-believing churches, consider the New Testament evidence. We have plenty of instances in the New Testament of genuine believers either carrying on in some kind of apostate activity, or who are in the midst of apostasy all around them, and the New Testament writer goes on to assure them that they are Christians on the one hand, but they need to repent of that activity, or at least examine themselves as the case may be on the other. There is the example of Jesus' disciples. All of them, with the exception of Judas, deserted Jesus in the end and came back. When push came to shove, they turned away from the Lord and they left in a hurry. Among the most notable examples is Peter. When someone recognized him as being with Jesus, he said, I don't know this man. Once he said it with an oath, and the last time with curses. And at that very moment, any one of us would have pegged Peter as an apostate. He wasn't. Now, someone somewhere out there, either here or in in cyberspace, listening to this message, might argue, but do we really know if Jesus' disciples were saved at this point? The New Testament seems to suggest that it was only after the resurrection that they finally understood everything and became stalwarts of the faith. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Consider those that Paul himself calls Christians in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, verse 17 and following, Paul addresses Paul addresses their apostate-like behavior. He begins in verse 17 with a stern warning, the sharpest way in Greek to say, listen to what I have to say. And then he calls them to put off characteristics of an unconverted life and put on in their place characteristics of a converted life because they are converted. If you visited that church, you might have walked out thinking it's apostate. But Paul's clear on this, that it wasn't. He even contrasts them with unbelievers in 17 and 19. He says, unbelievers are those who walk in the futility of their minds and are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They've become callous, they've given themselves to... Indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. And then in verse 20, he addresses the Ephesians, but you, big contrast, you did not learn Christ this way. So here is a context where believers displaying characteristics of unbelievers, and Paul comes alongside, calls them on it, and tells them to put it off and put on characteristics of what is true of them. Then there's also the situation in 1 Corinthians 6, where a church member uh, was sinning in a way that Paul says would have made the pagans blush, and the church was celebrating it. Oh yes, they were celebrating an unholy union. And if you were to attend this church at this particular time, you would no doubt have left very quickly, and you would have branded it an apostate church. Imagine the things they do here. And they're celebrating them. That's what you would have said. Paul knew something about these folks that you don't. And that is that they were not apostate, just in serious error at this time. And he calls them on it. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? And so he goes on to give this exhortation in verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be new unleavened batch as you really are. Do you catch that last phrase? As you really are. Here the message is the same as the one that he gave in Ephesians 4. Put off the characteristics of an unconverted life. Put on the characteristics of a new converted life because that's what you are. Now there are other examples that we could give, but I'll just give one more. And that is, the churches in Revelation that Jesus rebukes, with the exception, of course, of that one church called Philadelphia. Most who read this account are very quick to write these six churches off as being false. Apostate. That's it. But not so fast. It is true that these six received severe rebuke with the threat of being removed from the world scene. That's That's Jesus himself saying this. But rebuke does not automatically mean that they were all apostate. They certainly demonstrated characteristics of apostasy, but the fact that the Lord had not removed them yet shows that he considered them to be true churches at that very time. They needed to repent and get back on track. Let's take just the first two examples of of what we're saying here, just the first two churches. The Lord rebukes Ephesus. We're back to Ephesus now. Apparently they, they hadn't learned what Paul had taught them very well. He praises them in verses two and three. Note that. He praises them. I know your deeds and your labor and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people, and you've put those who call themselves apostles to the test, and they're not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endurance on, on account of my name, and you've not been become weary. And further praise comes from the Lord in verse 6. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What was apostate like is what he rebukes, and that's in verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else... I am coming to you, and I will remove the, your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Sober warning. There could be no question that there were some faithful Christians in Ephesus. And the rest were Christians who had become idolatrous, for they have left their first love. They had something else that occupied the affections of their heart instead of Christ. They needed to repent. The warning suggests that, they, that there was still hope Still hope. We might ask the same thing about Sardis in chapter 3. The Lord says, I know your deeds, that you have, you have a name, that you are alive, and yet you are dead. Be constantly alert and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the, in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Repent. Then, if you are alert, if you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Another sober warning. So in their case, we might assume the majority was found wanting when it comes to faithful service. The Lord calls them to repentance and to be watchful and busy about redeeming the times. Beyond this, they were, there were also a faithful few among them. Look at verse four. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What I am maintaining is that the book of Hebrews maintains this biblical practice of encouraging believers during seasons of apostasy by assuring them of their call, while at the same time exposing their behavior that might be characteristic of apostates. And so should we. Just to be clear, the thrust of verse 9 is encouragement. It highlights encouragement. So I would suggest that calling attention to any apostate-like behavior in a Christian's life is part of the encouragement. If it's done right, with love and grace and care, with the goal of the believer's best interest in mind, and that's exactly what the writer does here. He might start out by enforcing the the importance of self-examination when he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, but he is quick to reassure them. When he can, and as much as he can, in the same breath, that he believes they are not apostates, even though they might act in ways that are like them. And so he says, We are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. He's convinced that they don't fit the category of the true apostate that he's just described in verses 4 to 8 but rather he is convinced of better things in their case and those better things have to do with salvation not apostasy in his entire and this is the entire purpose of his letter he he sees bad trends the majority are infants in their faith when they should be mature some have fallen into the habit of not going to church some show an unwillingness to identify with the approach of Christ. Others they have trouble living by faith and not by sight. They flirt with views from a Jewish sect that are completely antithetical to Christianity. These trends are of course hazardous to the faith. But it doesn't mean that the person who is caught up in them or any one of them is not genuinely born again. It could simply mean that this person is weak in doctrine, ignorant of God's will, Always the case, uh, uh, as I'm sorry, as was the case with these believers who were not trained to discern good from evil, so they could have been ignorant. Do you recall what Jesus said to Peter on that occasion when Peter was so bold to prevent Jesus from going to the cross? After Jesus spoke of having to die and then be resurrected, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, if you can believe that. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Ideas, as long as I have anything to do with it. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns how do you think peter must have felt at that point there's no doubt peter loved jesus he he had he had just declared a moment ago in this very chapter that jesus was the christ the son of the living god and there's no doubt that that He thought he was looking out for Jesus' best interest when he said this. But his agenda, his agenda didn't square with God's agenda. It was really opposite of God's agenda. It was anti-biblical. It was against Christ. It supported satanic agenda. And and so Jesus exposes it for what it was. You know, it's scary to think that well-meaning Christians can carry out a satanic agenda with the best of intentions. Wow. It's obvious in Peter's case that he was simply ignorant. He was not familiar with the prophecies. His heart was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And this certainly is where the majority of the first century Jewish Christians who were receiving this letter of Hebrews were as well. They were immature in the faith, which allowed them to follow after error with all the best of intentions, Beloved, in seasons of apostasy, we should encourage believers in their faith and warn them if they at times act like apostates. We need to do that. What is wise about this is that it serves so many good purposes when we do this. First of all, it exposes counterfeits. Those who think that they're Christians, but they really aren't. Now, they're not apostates yet. They're just naive about the real gospel. They haven't left or departed. Or it also confronts those who've been on the verge of believing and have only recently been influenced by this season of apostasy all around them to leave. And we say, in effect, what the writer has warned. Therefore, we must fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. All right, well, we come to the second part of his approach, and that is this. In seasons of apostasy, we should encourage believers when they evidence the transformed life that God himself bore and sustains. We want to encourage them when they evidence the transformed life that God himself bore and sustains. That's verse 10. Now, one question that might gnaw at you Uh, since we've been talking about this, is this. If someone professing to be a Christian commits acts that are characteristic of apostates, why would I encourage them in the faith? Why wouldn't I think that he must be an apostate? And we might ask the same question in the case of the book of Hebrews. How can he talk so sternly about falling away and then switch gears so abruptly and talk about his confidence in their faith? that's a good question in the case of the writer to the hebrews he obviously knows something about this group of believers that has convinced him that their faith was genuine even though many of them were displaying habits that point in the direction of apostasy we already we've already shown from the new testament that one can belong to the lord genuinely and yet commit sins that are very much in line with Apostate acts. Peter is a good example of that. So, so what? how do we encourage those in our lives who profess to be Christians but may be involved in activity that are characteristic of apostates? Well, while we really cannot know for certain whether someone is a genuine born-again believer. Only God knows the heart. There are two indications that help us make safe assumptions. I know all of you, and I believe, you know, when you tell me that you are born-again, I know you enough to assume that that is correct. So what are the safe assumptions? Well, one would be a confession of faith, In the first century, this would have been associated with one's baptism since that was the time that one made a public declaration of their loyalty to Christ. And a confession was always significant all throughout church history. I think of the Reformation. One could die for merely confessing allegiance to Christ. So a believer's confession is important. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, Paul says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But that's not all. We know that confessions can be counterfeit and faith without works is dead. So I would say that together with his confession must be at the very least a clear evidence of a transformed life. And that's really all we have to go on because we cannot see the heart. An evidence of a transformed life, you see there is a difference between a professing Christian that commits acts that are characteristic of apostasy and a Christi- or, and the one who characteristically commits them. Did you hear that? There's a difference between a professing Christian who commits acts that are characteristic of apostasy and a professing Christian who character- characteristically commits them. One could be genuine, while the other cannot be genuine, because he who practices sin is not of God. The former case is what was true of the first century Jewish Christians. Their confession and testimony of their lifestyle gave the writer confidence that they were indeed Christians, and it is actually what verse 10 is getting at. The verse in Greek begins with a conjunction that some English translations have not retained, we might translate it this way because of, or on the basis of, the fact that God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name by having served and by still serving the saints. On account of, on the basis of, that's that little conjunction. The writers convinced of better things about this group with regard to salvation on the basis of their works of righteousness and the love that they have shown to God by helping his people. A transformed life. It's likely that work and love go together here and and we're to think of loving acts that they did to others in the body in both their own church and to those in other churches. Putting ourselves out for the sake of our neighbor is really what biblical love is all about. It's also significant that the writer makes the strong connection between God and His people. Do you see that? What that means is this: when we show love to God's people, we really show love to God. And and the Apostle John would have uh, would develop this later, this idea later in his first epistle. You you remember, he says, if someone says, "I love God," and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's 1 John 4.20. Now apparently, what was characteristic of these believers is a transformed life. And it's on that basis that the writer considers them to be genuine. Now more than this, the verse shows that a transformed life is a direct work of God. All the more reason why he considers them to be genuine. God can be trusted to carry that transformed life through to the end. That's what the writer says in verse 10. God is not unjust so, that, so as to forget your work and love. The, this is another way really of saying that God is reliable. He won't leave believers to themselves, but rather he will continue to work in them until they are glorified. This is really uh, the meaning behind Paul's words in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. Remember what we're arguing here. In seasons of apostasy... We should encourage believers when they evidence a transformed life that God himself bore and sustains. He identifies their good works and love as coming from a heart that God himself has regenerated and sustains and therefore he assures them of their faith in this time of apostasy. We should as well. We should as well. Finally, In the seasons of apostasy, we should encourage believers in order to keep themselves from being spiritually lazy. Our encouragement to them in these times of apostasy is so that they will keep themselves from being spiritually lazy. While it is true that God sustains them, they do play a part in their sanctification. They do. They do have responsibility, just the same, to maintain it. So he calls them in verse 11 not to let it wane. He says, And we desire that each one of you demonstrate the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That's a rather full sentence. What we have here is a great remedy and a preventative for spiritual laziness. Let me explain it to you this way. We Christians have a hope. Yes, we have a hope. A hope that is unique to the faith, it is unlike any hope that could be manufactured in the world. It is unique to the faith. It's unique in at least three ways. The nature of our hope is unique. The nature of it. It is, it is really a certainty or a guarantee. That's what we mean by biblical hope. When the New Testament talks about our hope, it does not include the element of chance, as we use it today, in the world. We don't say, I hope Jesus is coming back again, as if there is no guarantee. Jesus is coming back. That's why he is our blessed hope. So so there's a certainty with biblical hope. Certainty. It's really a synonym. The the, uh, content of our hope is also unique. What people hope for in this world is quite different from what believers hope in. It is specifically to be with Christ forever, fully redeemed in both body and spirit so that we may rule with him and be co-heirs with him. That will be reality for all Christians. No doubt about it. Reality. And then finally, and thirdly, this reality of our hope should be the guiding force in our lives. It should be ultimately the guiding force. It's what should drive you. When Jesus told his disciples um, to seek the kingdom in Matthew 6, this is what he meant. Keep your eye on the hope, the promise, the guarantee that God has given you. Keep your eye on that. Don't ever look away or veer from that. Because that is the only thing that is certain. Now, here's what happens when you live out your faith with great diligence toward this glorious goal. Here's what happens. You become more hopeful of it. The closer you get, the more hopeful. You become more assured. You develop a fuller assurance of its reality. The more you live in accordance with it, the more confident you become of its fulfillment. And when your assurance of heaven is strong, so is your walk with Christ. Look at The first part of verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy. Let's be formulaic about this, okay? Just so that we can have a better idea of what we're talking about. We want to be formulaic. Here's the formula. If you understand and are convinced of the Christian hope, then you will be diligent to live in full expectation of it. And the more diligent you are, the stronger your assurance of that hope becomes. And the less lazy you become. You know, laziness is a deceptive thing. It is. It's a deceptive thing. It doesn't simply mean being unproductive. Maybe you thought that. That's what we always, or what we usually think when we think about lazy. It really means being unproductive in the right things. That's what lazy means being productive in the right things. Jesus told Martha that, unlike her sister, she missed the one thing that is most important. Why? Because she was so busy and productive in the wrong things. It's instructive for us that, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the master calls the servant, who did not produce anything worthwhile with what he was entrusted to his, with, with what was entrusted to his care, a lazy servant—that's what he called him—and you know the story. The servant failed, even to make interest on the one denarii, denarii that his master entrusted to his care. So when the master returned, the servant said, "Oh, I went away. I hid your talent in the ground. See, you still have what's yours." What if I told you that there is every indication that he worked very hard at being lazy. You said, well, what do you mean? Think of what the servant did in order to keep this one talent safe. And I, I admit up front, what you're about to hear is pure conjecture on my part. Not always a safe thing to do when it comes to scripture. But I do believe it's not frivolous conjecture. He had to take time to locate that one spot in the ground to bury this talent that would be private enough so that no one would ever find it, even by accident. That's not as easy as you think. Also, there was the ground to consider. Oh, yes, the ground. It had to be just right. Now you don't want to be burying a coin in a ground that's too soft so that the pressure of a horse's hoof could displace the talon inside the hole and it could be lost forever. Or, on the other hand, the soil was too hard. So the spot where it was buried would become too obvious by the softer replacement of soil used to cover it up. People would say, oh, something's buried there. Someone could tell that something is certainly there, and then there goes the talent. If that's not enough to think about, the servant then had to make sure that he himself would remember the place where he buried it. If you think that's silly, I might remind you of those times when you've misplaced your wallet or purse, which was most likely in plain view all the time or took several minutes frantically looking for your car keys before you realized that they were in your hand. Then, there's the common testimony of so many who cannot remember where they hid something to keep it safe. Yeah, I hid that. I hid that so well, no one can find it, not even me. All that to say, a fair amount of planning and energy and time went into guarding this one talent, lots of time and energy spent on the wrong things. And all conjecture aside, beloved, I really don't have to convince you that Christians can be very busy about the wrong things. They can work hard doing the wrong kind of work. They can spend a great deal of time in the wrong areas. So let's understand that being lazy doesn't mean inactivity. A teenager could be very active playing video games from dawn till dusk and get absolutely nothing worthwhile done. It doesn't mean inactivity. It simply means not producing the right kind of yield, not working the right kind of job, not being busy in the right areas of life. Jesus made it very clear that it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul. If you understand and you are convinced of the Christian hope, then you will be diligent to live in full expectation of it. And the more diligent you are, the stronger your assurance of that hope becomes, and the less lazy you will be. Guarantee it. Far from being lazy, the rest of verse 12 predicts that you will imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. The way that verse 12 is stated in the Greek text makes its meaning a little bit ambiguous. The writer could simply be making a statement that by living this way we look just like the champions of the of old, of the faith of old, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Jesus actually meant the same thing when he said that if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we are just like the prophets of old who were likewise persecuted. Well, the other way to take this verse is as an exhortation, kind of like in command form. The writer appeals to us, imitate the champions of righteousness of old, you see. Now, since both are true and both are taught in the New Testament, and the writer actually gives us the same exhortation later in chapters 11 and 12. It's likely that both are meant here. Can't go wrong with both. And that's a good thing. It's good to be like those believing men and women, saints of old, who live by faith. They never took their eye off this hope, and neither should you. So seek to imitate Jesus their faith then. And not just their faith, but the faith of any believer, even today, even those in our midst, whose faith is worthy to be imitated. We often talk about how important it is for children to have role models. There's there's no denying that, but adults need them just as much. This theme of imitating faithful believers is all over the New Testament, and the writer of Hebrews will return to it at least three more times In this letter. In fact, it is so important that the Lord has even given a spiritual gift of faith, which is different, of course, from saving faith, right? The gift of faith mentioned along with other spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 refers really to a trusting, it's trusting God with an inexplicable confidence in in specific situations for specific outcomes for which there are no divine promises. That kind of faith. It's good to be around those who have that gift. Beloved, we're in a season that demands that we set up our ministry, or step up our ministry, I should say, to each other and and encourage each other in the way. Let's not be shy, then, to expose activity that is characteristic of apostasy, because that is not what we are about, and that is dangerous stuff. People will thank you, at least they should, when you do that. Of course, rebuke and warning is not popular even in the Christian churches today. But if we really love God, we will love His people and be sure to point out when they go off the rails. Let's also spur believers on because... Because we see especially a demonstration of a transformed life during this season of apostasy. It's such a great thing. A kind of transformation, by the way, is also not popular because it gives people the impression of being too demanding. And, it is one th- and if it's one thing that the contemporary church today does not want to be, it is demanding or holding people accountable. But we need to be that. And finally, let's encourage others in the way that points them to their hope. For if they live in light of that, then they will not become lazy. Father, we thank you for this time.